Zero, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane, and I am happy to be here to talk to you. Um, look, we are going to begin our, uh, our fall fund drive uh, starting uh, on Monday, on October 3rd, and we're going to run it through to uh, October 23rd. But you know what? I'm going to get a head start on it. <laughs> my, my show doesn't come on until Friday, so uh, look, I want to I do a little bit of pitching right now. Um, the theme for this fun drive is put your money where your ears are. Well, I'll take it a step farther. I'm saying put it where your heart is. This is Jazz and Justice Radio, and of course, many of the things that I talk about are more on the justice side than on the jazz side. But I think it's really important that, that you understand how critical this is. And one of the other parts of the theme for this fun drive is, is ensure that WPFW remains on the air for the next seven generations. Now, that's a very native concept, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit. But before I do, let me, let me give the, uh, the info on, on uh, supporting the station. We are Jazz and Justice Radio, and you can support WPFW by going to the pledge line, which is 202-588-9739. Or you can go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate. Now, look, you can make a contribution of any size. You can do a timed donation. You can set it up that it'll come out some other time or, or, or a pledge, however you want to do it. You can do a lump sum, small or large. Obviously, we'd love to see some large donations. Look, we're broadcasting here in... Washington, D.C. And as a Native person and as a Native program, I got to call out to, to, to so many of the, look, the people that are in the, in the Washington business, the lobbying business. I know that there are millions of dollars being spent by Native territories, Native peoples, tribes, if you will, um, to lobbyists, Washington-based lobbyists, uh, trying to ensure protection to our sovereignty, to our ways of life and that kind of thing. So look, if you're one of those, <laughs> if you've made part of your living off of Native people, then support the only Native voice on in the D.C. market. Do that. Make a contribution. Look, it's, it's not unreasonable for, for some of you folks to cut a, cut a $1,000 check to WPFW because the many, much of the information I'm talking about here, if you haven't heard the program, you should because it, it, it would impact your jobs. And, of course, I'm not just uh, trying to target you know, those people making money in, in, in the government, in lobbying or in the service. But we, we have to understand that, that this station providing me, my voice, the space to offer up so much of this information is, is a rarity. I mean, look, my voice is only carried on, on, on two of the Pacific stations, uh, WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. And... You know, I, for the most part, much of my voice is heard by Native people throughout, quote-unquote, Indian country. But in doing these programs, in doing this program, I'm reaching out to the non-Native audience. Look, I'm, I'm trying to reach out to the black community to, to talk about how much we have in common and some, uh, how much of our struggles are the same. But I'm also trying to talk to those people who are do represent the spheres of influence in places like Washington, D.C. So again, the pledge number is 202-588-9739. The website is wpfwdc.org slash donate. And, and again, I, let, me, let me talk about that theme. You know, of course, again, put your money where your ears are. 
look, you, you come to the station to listen to, to fantastic music and to hear provocative conversations relating to social justice. So that's why we are Jazz and Justice Radio. And I know that my voice is unique because there aren't a whole lot of programs that offer native commentary, native views, the, uh, the real information, the, the truth and history that, uh, that this, this show does. I mean, I call it resistance radio because our existence is the resistance. We, I, I, don't, I don't have to fight anybody. Just, just to maintain my existence is part of the resistance. And I'm going to talk about that. That's part of what I, I'm going to do the, the show on. But I think it's really important that, that, that this, this station continues. And, you know, and while, again, part of the theme is ensure that WPFW remains on the air for the next seven generations, that's a native concept. When we talk about seven generations, part of what we, part of the reason we use that expression is because we're trying to ensure that the decisions we make today, the actions that we take today, will have a positive impact, not just do no harm, but have a positive impact on those children that we will never see. Look, I've had on numerous occasions, family gatherings where five generations of, of family were, had come together. Five gen That's possible. I mean, it's, and it's, it's not uncommon to have five generations in a room, but it's rare to have six. And it's almost, it, it almost never happens to have seven. Because that seventh generation is the generation that you have an obligation to, but you will never know them because they will come long after, after you're gone. So when we say ensure that this station has, it remains on the air for, uh, for the next seven generations, we don't mean just that seventh, that seventh generation. We mean for every generation from now until then, because every one of us has that responsibility to ensure that the, that the actions we take, the decisions we make, will have a positive impact and that will have a positive influence on not just our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, but to the children that will be of our lines that we will never see. Now, I want to talk about grandchildren. Um, I had one of these, again, joyous occasions that, uh, you know, that we as human beings get to have. Not only do we bring children into the, into the world, but when you reach the age, you bring, bring grandchildren into the, into the world, or, or your children do anyway. Um, but not just your children, which is kind of the point of this story. So um, Monday, a couple of weeks ago, on, uh, on the 19th, my 10th grandchild was born. 10th, yeah. Uh, uh, this is my, and likely the, my last grandchild before we start getting into the great-grandchildren. But So my 10th grandchild was born. Now, it wasn't expected that he was going to be born on that Monday. Uh, in fact, my daughter was scheduled to go to the hospital and have the baby delivered via C-section because she's, she's had tough deliveries. And, you know, and she's you know, getting close to 40 years old, so she's at the age where she's considered a, a higher risk. So she was scheduled to go to, um, in fact, on Tuesday, on the Tuesday, not the Monday, but on the Tuesday. But she started going into labor over the weekend. So on Sunday, we brought her to the hospital. And she was there for a good part of the day. And, you know, and, and they monitored her, her contractions. And they said, well, you're, you're not really in full labor yet. But she's, again, this is, this is a girl who's had three children already. This was her fourth. And has never had very good deliveries. 
And her, this, this pregnancy was complicated by gallstones. So she, she had a number of things going on. So we bring her to the hospital where she was actually scheduled to have the C-section a mere two days later, believing that because she was entering labor, which you don't need to for, for a, a, a cesarean section, um, that they would in all likelihood uh, deliver the baby. But they said, no, you're not ready. And they sent her home. Now that, that caught us off guard. I mean, just, just a little bit. So we took her home. And a little put off by the whole thing. And my daughter didn't make it through the night. I, I don't mean she didn't make it, make it, make it. But she, she didn't last the night before she was ready to give birth. So my 10th grandchild, grand, and this was a grandson, was born in my living room on my couch. My wife, the grandmother delivered the baby. Everything worked out, and the baby was healthy. You know, the, the, um, the EMTs showed up just in time to cut the cord. Um, when the mother and child, my, grand, my daughter and my grandson, uh, were taken to the hospital, we wouldn't take them back to the hospital that had rejected her and had turned her away. Now, and she was scheduled, again, scheduled to have a, a C-section in that hospital. But again, so the baby's healthy, everything seems good. But you know, it was only a couple of days ago that it dawned on me. You know, and, I, and I, all of a sudden I started thinking about the mortality rate for mothers and children uh, who, are, who are people of color, Native, Native women, black women, and, and those children. The, the rate of death to mother, mother and or child for people of color, it's like three to four times higher than for a white person. So the, the question is being, why is that? I, you know, again, the theme of the show is about the next generations. This is how the next generation happens. And when people of color have a higher risk for mortality during childbirth than anybody else, and that, that's black people and, that, and, that, and that's native people. I mean, we're, this is, again, one of those, those things we have in common here. I mean, the question is why? And, you know, and this, study, this has been studied. This has been studied, you know, several times over. Um, but they never really dig into it. Why? Because they don't want to make it about racism. They have no problem suggesting that it's race. But they don't want to make it about racism. But, but here's the thing. We are just as healthy. And this, and by the way, when this data is collected, it, it, it goes, runs across um, income uh, you know, levels. So it's not just, this isn't just about poverty. This is about the treatment and the care that women of color get in hospitals. And, it, and it's really apparent because the numbers are really stark and they're, and they're easy to, to uh, collect on mortality for, for, uh, during childbirth. So the question ends up being, well, why is that? Well, would my daughter have been turned away from this hospital if she was white? I mean, that, that's the question, right? Would she have been turned away if she was white? And I, I mean, because we don't know, there's, there's a, she was turned away. And everything worked out, but what if it didn't? I mean, what if it didn't work out? 
And those numbers are coming from somewhere. And I've heard some stories that say, well, you know, uh, doctors and, and hospital staff don't take uh, um, uh, pain seriously when, when our women, you know, complain of it. There's something that's happening in these hospitals, and, it, and it's more geared towards racism than towards genetics, than towards, um, you know, physicality or, or any of that stuff. Our women are just as healthy and just as capable of, of giving birth as, as a white woman. So I had the personal experience with my daughter and my grandson getting turned away from a hospital. During, I mean, during a critical time, a pregnancy that's been troubled, again, you know, with gallbladder issues and uh, a daughter who was approaching 40 years old. So I have to ask, I, I have to throw that out there because a lot of times on this on the show, I can talk about things in a general sense, what Native people go through. But I don't make it personal very often because I, I want to remain somewhat objective. This one's a little hard to be objective over, folks. So... I have my, my 10th grandchild, my, my seventh grandson, uh, and he is healthy, but no thanks to the medical profession. None whatsoever, because this was done at our home. I do, I do have to give some credit to the, to the 911 operator who uh, coached my wife and my daughter along. But this, is, this has to be the common reality that contributes to the higher mortality rates. You know, and, and you know, we, can, we can have all kinds of discussion on, on why and who's responsible and all that stuff. But you know, when I speak of Native people being arguably, arguably the most marginalized people, and, and, I, and, and granted, I'm not trying to compete with other people who are oppressed. And, and you know, this, this is issue with mortality rates during childbirth is not unique to, to Native people. But there are some things. And the numbers are pretty, pretty staggering when you consider our history and, and what we have endured. Let me, let me I, I don't think many people have heard this. So I want to break it down a little bit. And I, I will say, getting numbers on Native people is, is somewhat difficult because the U.S. Census is not our process. And, you know, and so it's really hard for me to sit here and say how much we participate in the U.S. Census, how accurate it is. But I will say that in 2020, when they did the, the, US, the U.S. Census, they came up with a number of uh, something like almost 8 million Native people identified them. 8, 8 million... Um, I'm sorry, almost 10 million, 9.7 million people during the who participated in the 2020 census identified themselves as Native American. You know, there's not a whole lot on the census that, that where you have to you know, provide any proof. This is just word of mouth. This is just self-identifying. That number <laughs> is up from 10 years prior to the, the, the 2010 census where that number was 5.2 million. Now, it is impossible. It is impossible, physically impossible, for the Native population to have grown from 5.2 million to 9.7 million in 10 years. So what's the explanation? Well, the explanation gets to what I was hinting at with this self-identification. So there are two things that go on 
with being native people. There is the elimination of our population. There, there, I mean, and we're talking about killing, massacres, disease, uh, you know, poverty that, that has caused, contributed to, to deaths. I mean, any number of things. I mean, that's why our population has reduced. But it's not just that our population is reduced. We get erased. We get replaced. And I, want, I mean, it's funny because you, you hear white people always talking about this replacement theory. It's why they, they stand up with their, with their white supremacy uh, uh, groupings and that kind of stuff. But l- let me explain this a little bit. So I think the, the 5.2 million number from, uh, from 10 years ago was greatly inflated. And, and again, it's because it's attributed to people who are self-identifying. You know, the, you know the folks, who's, who, everybody who claims their grandmother was a Cherokee princess or, or they, they've got stories. Now, I'm not suggesting that people who have some of that family lore somewhere in the past don't have a Native ancestor. But that in of itself doesn't make you a Native person. It doesn't connect you to culture. This, it isn't about blood quantum. So whether it's, you know, a one thirty second or, or frankly, whether you are 100% Native by blood, that's not what makes you a Native person. It's the culture. It's, it's the, the family. It's the community. It's all that stuff. So of the people who get considered Native, at least via the census, there is, there's no way to quantify the accuracy of that. But if you look at how many Native peoples there are in terms of uh, um, the federally recognized groups and the non-federally recognized groups, you can come to, come to a number. But that 5.2 million from 10 years ago or, and, and the 9.7 million from, uh, from two years ago, those numbers are, are insane. They're absurd. The reality is there are likely less than 2 million or right around 2 million Native people in the United States that can, that can, that can fully uh, you know, account for themselves and, and are considered you know, um, part of a, a, a you know, recognized as, as part of a, of a Native, Native peoples. Now, of that, of that 2 million, 70% don't live on Native lands. So of that 2 million, only about 600,000 Native people live on Native lands under Native jurisdiction with, with their own governments and, and, and are part of a community. Now think about that. We were a population that, you know, again, the estimates about how, how many people were here before contact is, is all over the map too. But it is probably safe to say that there were at least 20 million Native people in the area that the United States claims as, uh, as its territory now. So we go from 20 million down to, I mean, down to, to 2 million. And as far as a people, a really distinct people living on it. Now, I'm not trying to dismiss. There's a lot of people who don't live on Native territory that maintain um, a, a strong cultural connection. But just think about that. Our numbers have re- been reduced. Nine, I mean, for all intents and purposes, 99% of our population was, was eliminated. It isn't just that our population reduced by 99%. That's 99% of, of our population that was killed through, through some means. War, massacres, uh, murder, disease, poverty, starvation, all of that stuff. 
And of course, some of that population was reduced by, by essentially eliminating our identity, even if you don't eliminate us. I mean, think, think about the residential schools. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as we, as we go on. Think about residential schools. 150 years of killing the Indian. That's literally what the slogan was. Kill the Indian, save the man. Hundreds of thousands of, of Native children run through these schools to eliminate their Native identity. Now, you, don't, you didn't necessarily have to kill those children, but an awful lot died. You didn't necessarily have to kill them to, to eliminate our numbers because once you can say, see, you're not Native anymore. Now you're an American. Now you're a Christian. Now you're a Democrat, Republican, whatever. Now you don't need to go back to the reservation. We, we took you out of there, you know, um, when, you were, when you were three years old. You don't need to go back. So you cut that tie. That's why 70% of our population, says, why does 70% of the people don't live on Native territories? Well, all the, all the severing of those, of those family ties took place for 150 years. This is one of the unique aspects of, of, of our history as it relates to, you know, to other, look, and I'm not trying to compete against what the, what the black history has been. Although I will say Native people were the first enslaved on this continent. I'm not saying that you know, black people weren't being enslaved in Europe and, and dragged back to Europe before they were dragged here. But the first slave, the first slave ship, transatlantic slave ship, was Columbus bringing Native people back to Spain. And among those Native people, were the, the hot commodities were little girls, nine and ten years old. And it doesn't take much imagination to figure out what, what white Spaniards want with, wanted with them. I mean, think about this. This is the other, other thing that I, that I just got to put out there. In the United States, there are approximately um, a million Haitian Americans. You know, uh, and, you know, and that includes, you know, immigrants, but, you know, some, some that were born. So a million Haitian. That's more than our number. From one island in the Caribbean, there are more Haitians in the United States than, than essentially, you know, Native. We can, we can argue that there's two, there's two million, perhaps. But as far as Native people living as, as distinct Native people, we're talking about only about, a, you know, 600,000 people. Puerto Rico, and I'm not dogging Haiti, and I'm not dogging Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, there are almost 10 million um, Americans, and Puerto Ricans are considered Americans, so don't get me wrong here. There are almost 10 million, over 9 million um, Americans who identify as Puerto Rican. So that population didn't get, get, didn't get wiped out. Now, I'm not saying they didn't get colonized, you know, by Spain first, and that's why, uh, you know, Puerto Ricans are considered Hispanic. And, and a lot of those Puerto Ricans don't live in Puerto Rico. I, mean, the, the, I think the, 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 um, the overwhelming uh, majority of Puerto Ricans don't live in Puerto Rico. So that number doesn't go down. So those people from Haiti that, you know, whether it, it's in Haiti or in the United States, those numbers aren't aren't eliminated. There isn't, isn't a depopulation program, nor was there for, for Puerto Rican people, nor was there for black people. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that Haitians and, and Puerto Ricans and, 
and, and black Americans haven't been oppressed. They absolutely have. So I, I, I'm trying to hedge my conversation a little bit here. But their populations have not been um, intentionally reduced. We go from over 20 million down to 2 million. And then have the then that gets reduced even farther down to down to you know six hundred thousand people who who can live and as native people on native lands under their own jurisdiction and governments. I mean that's an incredible number. That's that's like reducing. I mean that means that 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 the population of native people in the United States who was and and again in this territory where we weren't a hundred percent of the population represent. 0.15% of the American pop, of the U.S. population as far as Native people living as, as distinct Native people. So however we got there to this ridiculously low number, and I got to tell you, at the turn of the 20th century, our numbers had been reduced to just about, just under a quarter of a million people. That, that was the lowest total population that we ever had, had been reduced to. But even as our population has, has increased since the turn of that century, of the 20th century, the rest of the population is still burying us. So we, we become marginalized in the overall population. And then even within those who want to claim to identify themselves as Native people, we get overrun. The vast majority of people who claim to be Native people are not. They're, they're simply not. And, and, and the, the census numbers anomaly, if you will, you know, between 2010 and 20, 2020 prove that. I mean, and so that was a story that was pretty well covered. But I, so I want to throw, I throw these numbers out there because I don't under, I don't think people truly understand what the native experience has been. I mean, we get associated with, with casinos and cigarettes and, and, and look, and I talk a lot about gaming and, and, and tobacco and that kind of stuff. But we get associated with that as if we've got these thriving economies that, uh, and that we're all doing so well. People believe that the Native people get all kinds of government money and that kind of stuff. Look, whatever we get from the federal government and, or state governments is money owed to us. And it's a fraction of what is really owed. <laughs> and, and again, I've mentioned this on the program before, but just think about this. There was a lawsuit called the Cobell suit. Eloise Cobell uh, brought a suit against the, the United States, against the Interior Department for the most part, because the money that the, that the Interior Department as the trustees for Native um, assets what had, had been disappearing. By some estimates, there was $100 billion that was lost and everything from giving away oil leases and grazing leases and forest leases and that kind of stuff um, and never getting paid for them uh, to, to investments that, that the Interior Department uh, blew, just lost. And, of course, the amount of nepotism that went to who got contracts and that kind of stuff is, is just insane. But by some estimates, there was $100 billion that was lost of, na of, of Native money and assets. The George W. Bush administration had contemplated, contemplated settling this thing to the tune of $40 billion. $40 billion. The Obama administration settled it for four. And 
That's what the, the people involved with this, this suit against the, the United States, they were almost, they were forced to take it because they were, this was their only shot. So a large number of Native people, I mean, for, we are a small, small population, but a, large, a fairly decent percentage of, of the Native population received checks for, you know, $800, $1,000. It didn't matter that $100 billion worth of their assets. And some of that stuff wasn't, wasn't, just ass, wasn't just enumerated assets. It was things like whose land, what was the land that they owned? So land had been lost, and there was no way to document it because the, the Interior Department, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, destroyed records. Of that $4 billion that Obama appropriated for the settlement, much of it got used to buy land back. So white people got paid again. It's, so this is what, what I talk about, what we experienced. It isn't, even when the violence stopped, even when they stopped hanging and murdering, and, and look, I got to say this. It was their armies that killed our people. It wasn't just lynch mobs. It wasn't just, you know, slave masters. It wasn't just, you know, people with pitchforks and torches. It was their military, the 7th Cavalry. It was the Sand Creek Massacre, the Wounded Knee Massacre. There was, you know, massacre after massacre after massacre, you know, throughout the entire U.S. history. So our people were, were murdered by the military. This was a government-sanctioned elimination of population, as was residential schools. 150 years of residential schools had two main functions. To cut the family ties, to end native identity. That's the same goal. And, and, and take our lands. We had the largest period of land loss during the 150 years and the largest period of identity loss. It was meant to eliminate us. It was part of the genocide. Genocide isn't just murder. Genocide is creating the conditions where, where there's an intentional policy to make a people cease to exist. Well, that's what the United States did. And most Americans were and are fine with that. You know, I, I've talked about this quote before. It, it's by L. Frank Baum. And if you don't know who L. Frank Baum is, L. Frank Baum was the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. So this famed American author, and, and of course many people interpret The Wonderful Wizard of Oz as, as a children's story. It wasn't. It was, it was a parody. It was actually a political parody. Um, but, you know, of course people think Judy Garland and Somewhere Over the Rainbow and all other stuff. And look, I'm not telling you you got to hate the movie. <laughs> so, I, in fact, I, I, my... my uh, one of the people I, rep I, I just idolized was Iz from, from Hawaii, who did um, you know, a, a terrific rendition of Somewhere Over the Rainbow on a ukulele. But, so look, I, I have no issue with Judy Garland or you know, the actors or, you know, or any of that stuff. But the author, L. Frank Baum, before he wrote this wonderful Wizard of Oz, he had a real issue with Native people. In fact, the witch and those monkeys in the Wizard of Oz, um, they, that's, 
in his mind, that rep he was representing Native people by, by the, you know, these antagonists. He had a strange view. Well, I, I, it sounds strange when you, when you read some of what he wrote about Native people. Because on one hand, he thought that guys like Sitting Bull were, this, were these noble figures. But he thought the vast majority of Native people were, were despicable. Here's a quote from him, because he, had, he recommended in 1890 that all Native people just be exterminated. And of course, we were well on the way. Again, 99% of our population was eliminated. We were already well on the way, but he said we, they should be exterminated. He said, we cannot honestly regret extermination. Histi history would forget these latter despicable beings and speak in later ages of the grand kings of the forest and the plains. So his view was, if you killed us all, then you could take our identities and prop them up as, as these noble figures as a part of your history. Not our history, but yours. And I, I use that quote when I'm, when I'm taking on the, the, the mascot issue because I think it, it lays the foundation for the mindset that says, well, we can still hate Indians, but we can still use their images for our mascots, and then we can claim that it's all out of respect. No, it's out of respect for yourselves, but it's not out of respect for us. Because, again, getting back to my daughter, getting back to those numbers associated with people of color having a higher mortality rate on something that should be pretty well figured out by now, childbirth. we're still being exterminated. We're still being eliminated through a, assimilation programs. Yeah, the residential schools are over. But there's still such a high level of indoctrination. And I got to tell you, and I know this is true for the black community just like it is for, for the native community. We have many of our own people who have become so self-deprecating that they want to identify with, with white folks. And they'll carry the water for white folks. We see, we see politicians all the time of color. They're, 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 look, they're either Democrats or Republicans. And, and, and people would have you believe all primarily, you know, predominantly Democrats. I don't know that that's even true. But even so, we experience racism at the hands of, of Democrats, just like we do at a... Uh, at the hands of Republicans. And we have our own people, black people, native people, involved in that process. And they are the ones who will condemn black culture and native culture and that identity. Look, we've heard, we've heard plenty of native people, you know, you know, condemn the resistance that native people represent. Condemn you know, what came to be known as warrior societies. We've had plenty of black people condemn Black Lives Matter. You know, in, in the, the largest city close to where I live here on the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation is Buffalo. On May 14th, when that, that white supremacist went there and shot down 13 people, killing 10 of them, 10, no, let me be clear, shot down 13 black people, killing 10 black people. That enabled Buffalo and, and New York State to all of a sudden take a stand against racism. 
It took blood to do that? It took lives to do that? The conditions that were set for that to occur have existed for, for 500 years. And now, so we're going to reduce our ideas of racism down to an 18-year-old with an AR-15? There's a long way to go in, in the radicalization of a racist before they pick up a gun and kill, uh, kill a person of color. And most of that racism is so deeply embedded in the media, in the government, in the police, in the courts, in the schools, that we're not even close to getting it out. We're not even close. Oh, yeah, we're going to get you know, some crocodile tears when, when, a, when a white boy kills a bunch of black people. But when the governor of the state of New York <laughs> extorts half a billion dollars out of, again, some of the most marginalized people in the country, out of the Senecas, that's not, not only is it not condemned, it's not even a crime. It was legal for her to do it. Then take $400 million of that and turn around and give it to, uh, to a rich white guy. So he can build a football stadium for the team that he owns. I mean, this is racism. And this is systemic racism. This is white supremacy. It's not just the 18-year-old. In fact, the 18-year-old with the AR-15 going into a, a tops-friendly market, that's not systemic racism. Systemic racism got him there. But that's lone wolf stuff. What Kathy Hochul did by squeezing half a billion dollars out of the Seneca Nation, two billion altogether is what the Senecas have been squeezed out of, out of much-needed resources for the Seneca people. That's systemic racism, and that's white supremacy. And so I gave all these numbers, not just to suggest that we are a resilient people. I gave all these numbers about how much our population was reduced to, to make a point not only about the fact that no matter how, no matter how, no matter the fact that they eliminated our population to the tune of 99%, eliminated 99% of our population, we're still here. You know, and, and I know it's not probably the greatest analogy, but when I think about the adversities that we had to go through as a people to still be here, I do feel a certain connection to the, to the stations that, that provide me space on their airwaves, WPFW. So when they use this, this theme of ensure that WPFW remains on the air for the next seven generations, we can't take it for granted. It is real easy for the system to eliminate us. And, you know, you eliminate... 99% of our voices. And look, I, I, and look, let me get back to, just for a second, Jazz and Justice Radio. 
I think it's really important that people understand there is a connection between jazz and justice. I mean, jazz is liberated music. It is, it, you can't actually write jazz. You have to live it. It, it, just like with blues. It comes from a place, it comes from a place of struggle and oppression. And it's resistance to fight back the constraints that people try to put even on music. If you eliminate, further eliminate stations like WPFW and WBAI that offer something that no other stations are gonna have, where are you gonna get this stuff from? Look, I appreciate, and in fact, I am honored to be heard by the, by the listening audience of WPFW. But I, I, I know that some of what I have to say is probably painful to hear. I mean, to hear the numbers that I, that I just rattled off about how much we, we have been eliminated as a people, that's not pleasant stuff. But, you know, in spite of all that, we're still here. I'm still here. But we can't be here if we don't have some support. And I'm, I'm talking about we as Native people, we as artists, whether it's music or whatever else, jazz. We can't be here without the support of people who may not be in the same struggle, but who are struggling themselves. So I know it's tough. I mean, it's, I know it's tough to come on the radio and ask people to support a radio station. I mean, the assumption is, oh, if you're on the air, you guys must be doing all right. I mean, and that goes for the assumption that people make, uh, make about us as producers and make about us as, as, a, as stations. I mean, when I think about WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C., well, those are big markets. Surely the station's got to be doing fine. No, we are listener-supported radio. We depend on you. So if you want this station to continue, you got to support it. You got to put your money where your ears are. Put your money where your heart is. Again, we can't ensure that this station will be here for the next seven generations. If we don't ensure that it's here for the next, the next generation. And I know we have work to do. We need stronger outreach to, to a younger audience in, you know, in, because We've got to, we have to change a little bit as we go. I think we have great programming on the station. I really do. But we've got to have better outreach. But we need your support. And I'll tell you, we need your support not just in dollars. We need your support in word of mouth. So, yeah, put your money where your ears are. But you know what? Put your mouth where your ears are a little bit. Spread the word. Let them know you heard, you know, a, a provocative uh, talk show host talking about native issues. Let them know you, you've listened to a station that has jazz like no other station has. That you have, that there's commentary and opinions and facts and data and history that you're not going to hear anyplace else. And you know what? Let your, let those people you know who, who are in those spheres of influence, let them in on the, on the secret that WPFW is a rich station. It's not financially rich, but it's a rich station with content. 
look, we need your support. We start this fund drive next week. And I wanted to get a jump start at it because, look, I'm not in Washington. I am one of the producers who, who does my show remotely. And, and my kind of remote is different than most people's kind of remote, folks. I'm sitting in, a, in my own studio on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in a small studio of my own design, either broadcasting live or, or, or recording these shows. And, and I do a podcast as well. This show actually becomes a podcast. And you can find us by, by not only looking for the archives on WPFW, but you can, you can search for Resistance Radio with John and Regan on, uh, on your smart speaker or on Google, a Google search. I also do a podcast called Let's Talk Native. But you know what? It took some doing for me to even do something like this, to create a studio that allows me to, to create this kind of content. And I could not be more honored than, you know, to have WPFW carry this program. And I know, I mean, I may not even fit in completely with, with some of the other um, content here. But it's only because you're, you may not hear how, what the connection is between Native people and music. I encourage people to, if you ever get, get a chance, rent or um, purchase the, 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 the video Rumble, How Indians Rock the World. It, it, it shows that, that deep connection between Native people and, and, and you know, black folks and, and the enslaved people who were dragged from, from Africa and, you know, that relationship between Native people. And I have to understand, when I talk about the numbers, our numbers being eliminated, let me, let me tell, just get a little aside here. One of the ways that our numbers were eliminated so starkly was there were states who, that passed laws refusing to recognize a person's ethnicity as Native. So many Native people, not only because of the connections that we had with, with, with much of the, the black community and the connection that black people had with our communities, we had, to, we had to identify as black. I mean, a friend of mine says the first black people in America were Native people. I don't think people understand what she says, what she means when she says that. What she, what, she's talking about black people as an experience, not as a color of a skin, but the black experience. The first people that were oppressed in, in the new world were Native people. We're the first people to be blackened the way Africans were. So the first black people in America were, were, were Native people, Indigenous people. And I, and I don't know, and I've heard that said before, and, and the first time I heard it, I didn't quite get it. I said, no, we weren't all black. And, and, and you know, because it gets mixed up with this idea of origin stories. No, our connections with black people is, is distinct and solid, although there's pushback. I mean, there's a certain segment of the black community that rejects Native people and a certain uh, segment of the Native population that rejects black people. We, we, there are people within our population that would be more drawn to white people, both you know, relationships, uh, politically, um, economically, all that stuff. We don't rally together. This station 
gives me the opportunity to be on the same platform with so many people that are so important, so, so many important black voices. And, and again, I could not be happier and, and more appreciative. You know, again, I've talked about this before, this idea of land back. You know, I've said this before, that when it, as it relates to truth and reconciliation, as it relates to uh, residential schools, well, we got a long way to go on truth. But we have even farther to go on reconciliation because we can't reconcile that travesty without truthfully acknowledging what was stolen during that 150 years. Land and an identity, autonomy. If we don't restore lands and, uh, and autonomy, we can't reconcile that. That's not reconcilable. And then, I mean, the reality is some things like slavery and residential schools are not reconcilable. But if you want to talk about restorative justice, then there has to be something restorative. So when I talk about getting land back, restoring some of our land, I, you know, I, I sometimes have to take that a little farther and say, we need space. We need a place. We need column inches in print. We need time slots on cable, on the radio, on television, whatever. So it isn't just land. We need to, to occupy spaces that have been denied to us that have been taken from us. WPFW has had a commitment towards Native Voices for many, many years. Years before I joined, before I was tapped to be one of those voices or the voice at this point. I appreciate it. And while many of you who listen to this may, again, you, you may have some difficulty reconciling my message with what you perhaps expect out of Jazz and Justice Radio. But it does, it's not irreconcilable. It actually fits. If you hear me and you think critically, you'll understand that. And I hope you do. And I, and I, hope, I hope you appreciate what WPFW has done by giving me the space. And I hope you will show that appreciation by supporting WPFW, Jazz and Justice Radio. Again, the, uh, the pledge line is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or you can go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate. That's wpfwdc.org slash donate. Now, Look, you may listen to this as a podcast. You may listen to this as, as an archive show. So while it's easy to track donations that come in while the show is airing, the only way anybody will know that you're making a contribution to the station because, because you heard my program is if you tell them. So check the box. When, you know, and, and look, I don't have to be your favorite program. But at least acknowledge to the to management to when you make your donation that you're making uh, the donation at least partially, if not totally, on behalf of uh, being a, a listener of Resistance Radio. It's important to me, and it's important to the station. Look, this we don't tap our listeners to find out 
what everybody's listening to. And, you know, these rating services do a very poor job, you know, uh, especially any kind of radio that involves people of color, black radio, native, we don't, the, the Nielsen ratings and stuff like that, that's, that's for commercial radio. That's not for radio like this. So we don't have a real good metric for measuring. But one of the metrics is if you listen to a show, you like the show and you make a donation and you mention that show, well, at least that, that sends a signal. So again, John Kane here for Resistance Radio, and I'm asking that you support this program by supporting the station. I'm an unpaid producer. So I'm not putting my hand out for me. I'm putting my hand out for you to support WPFW Jazz and Justice Radio. So one final time, let me give the numbers again. The pledge line is 202-588-9739. The website is wpfwdc.org slash donate. I greatly appreciate any of you who can do what you can. Make a one-time donation, do a time donation, become a sustaining member. You, you, know, you can give your, your checking account information or your, your credit card information uh, and make a modest monthly donation. That, that's manageable for us. That lets us know that we've got that $10 a month coming in from you know, X amount of listeners. That's, you know, that's how we make payroll. And look, this, not all of the producers are, are volunteers. Most of us are. But we can't do this without the paid staff that we have at WPFW. We have licenses. We have rentals. We have equipment. We have all the stuff to pay for. So even if, if much of the content is our people like me who are so much a part of the activist community, we see the opportunity for airtime to reach you. That's our reward. But that's our reward. But the station needs you to, to reward them. So again, please support WPFW Jazz and Justice Radio. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.